Welcome to the Caroline Gleick Show, where we talk about adventure and activism and how sports can change the world. In December 2021, my partner Rob and I are going to climb and ski Mount Vincent, which is the highest peak in Antarctica. For this trip, I'm highlighting leading women in climate science in Antarctica. In my research leading up to the trip, I was shocked to learn that women were banned from joining Antarctic scientific research expeditions until the 1960s in the U.S., and in the case of the British, it was 1984. Well, there have been gains made for women's equality in many walks of life. When you look at the highest levels, whether it's science or mountaineering or other industries, you still see an absence of women. My hope is, by highlighting climate scientists like Dr. Ali Banwell, we can continue to disrupt our notions of what a scientist looks like. Okay, I am super excited to have Dr. Allie Banwell on the show today. She's a climber, a climate scientist, specifically a glaciologist studying the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets. She is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, and she's been on five Antarctic research expeditions. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. That yeah. is so cool. So do, should I call you Dr. Banwell or Allie? Yeah, um, no, no, no. Just call me Allie. Okay. Well, Allie, thank you so much for joining me for the show. Yeah. Thank you for uh, having me on. It's uh, great to talk to you. I'm so excited to hear more about what you do and how you got into it. So maybe we can start and you can just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah, before I talk about the science, uh, yeah, as you say, I'll give a bit of information about my background. So yeah, I'm a glaciologist, so I study glaciers. Um, I got into glaciology because uh, I've always been a climber um, and from a very young age, I was kind of exploring the hills in the UK, Scotland in particular. And I didn't know anything about glaciers in those days, but um, my aunt used to like point out and say like, look at, look at that mountain. It was like carved by moving ice. And I just thought that idea was so cool from a really young age. Um, so then when uh, I got to university, um, yeah, I, um, I studied earth science and with a particular emphasis on glaciology. Unfortunately, I wasn't taught um, any, anything to do with glaciers or even really climate change at school. Like when I say school, I mean like under age 18. So yeah, I, it was like this big thing that I really wanted to learn about by the time I got to university, which was uh, Edinburgh in Scotland for my undergrad and then PhD from Cambridge in the UK. So um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of gone from that. I usually in- introduce myself as a glaciologist, but I hate the cold <laughs> because I really hate I really really hate the cold. So it's just completely ironic that I actually do quite a lot of uh, field work. But that does I mean field work in yeah super cold areas. But it does mean that when I go climbing now, I just focus on warm rock climbing. I really don't like ice climbing, even though I used to do quite a bit of it in uh, Scotland when I was a student there. Yeah, I feel like the more I've gone on expeditions too, like the lower sometimes my tolerance for suffering at home is because like even just recently I went on this cold weather camping trip and I knew I have this Antarctic expedition coming up to Vincent and I was like really kind of grumpy about having to sleep out in the cold just because I think my body's sort of like bracing for it. And so it's super funny. Um, It doesn't like the cold weather adaptation for me. I mean, I love the cold. I grew up in Minnesota, so it was very cold where I grew up, and I love it. But I don't love always, like, sleeping out and roughing it all the time. So that's really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's funny. I feel like I rough it way too much when I'm down in Antarctica for, like, weeks, months on end. So I just want to enjoy myself when I'm uh, 
yeah, not freezing my ass off. <laughs> yeah. So when did you go on your first Antarctic expedition? So, yeah, that was pretty late on, I guess. That was um, after my PhD. So I was like age, I don't know, 26, 27. Um, but during my PhD, I'd been to Greenland twice. Um, so that was more like early 20s. So, yeah, I got the opportunity working with a, um, a colleague at the University of Chicago. But, yeah, I felt sh- extremely privileged because it's actually been uh, yeah, it's fairly recent that women have been allowed down to Antarctica. Um, much earlier with the American program, which is who I traveled down with the first time. But I've also been to Antarctica with the British Antarctic program. They did not allow women down there. So, and I've checked the facts for this. They didn't allow women until 1984. But in that year, women were only allowed to stay on the actual research bases. They weren't allowed into like what we call the deep field. So they weren't allowed into tents. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until 1988 that women were allowed uh, to go and do like proper field work. I say proper meaning like out of tents in the deep field. Um, but they could only go in summer. So it's still restricted. The men can go in winter. The women can only go in summer. It's just kind of crazy. But yeah, the, the American program was, yeah, I think they are. Uh, I haven't checked the facts on this, but they definitely allowed women down there much earlier from the 70s, I believe, early 70s. That is so wild to think about. And so what was the justification for not having women in the British program until so late? Yeah, so I think, it, yeah, I, I could read up way more on this. It's a super interesting topic. Um, yeah, in fact, I know someone who studied their whole PhD and master's on this. But um, yeah, apparently it's because the British program didn't have any female mountaineers um, and they always assign a mountaineer to each field project. And therefore they basically didn't want to put any female scientists with the male mountaineers because then they didn't know what would happen if they put them together in a tent. And that was, that seemed to be their justification. It was like, it was almost like we don't know how to like look after this like bizarre kind of person, even though like 50% or even more than 50% of the world's population are female. I know it's so wild. I mean, I I remember when I first learned about ecofeminism and it's like these parallels between how we conceptualize nature and how we yeah. think about women. And those kinds of veins really run deep in Antarctica because it was like one of these last sort of discovered wildernesses and the way that men would describe it was like as a great virginal woman and this idea that it was like men's place to kind of conquer and explore I think has a lot of parallels in how men still speak about women today and yeah I'm super grateful for your work in breaking the ice ceiling and reaching these highest levels as a glaciologist because I mean, I think still when we think in our minds about what a scientist or glaciologist or a mountaineer, what they look like, we still like the probably for most people, the first image that we conjure is not of for me, like I'm a very petite woman. and I don't know how tall you are, but um, yeah, you're not like this big, burly, bearded man person. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. No, I'm five seven. But yeah, yeah, it's funny. So yeah, I have a bit of a story there. So last time I was down in Antarctica, two years ago, um, I was the field team leader for our project. Mm-hmm. And I'd gone with um, just two other people in my team, another woman and a man. The, the man is uh, much more senior, um, like uh, late career. And um, it emerged that when we got back out from the field, when we got back to the research base, this rumor had been going around the station, which was that, oh, Banwell is 
is this guy, the, the old guy in the team. And, <laughs> and it turns out, I was like, no, I'm, yeah, I'm Ali Banwell. It's me. I'm the leader. It's not him. It's like the assumption was that people had just seen us arrive, people on the station seen us arrive. There were three of us, and they just automatically assumed the older man who's more senior than me by like 20 years um, was the leader. He, and it just wasn't true. <laughs> so you were the expedition leader, and everybody assumed yeah, yeah. that the I'm, man. I'm the expedition leader. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but everyone, and the other woman was a similar age to me. And yeah. That is. That is so interesting. And um, how did that work out in terms of the rest of the expedition, the dynamic between you and your teammates, especially the the male one? Yeah, no, um, it, it was fine. It was great. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, I guess, slightly strange, but not in the sense that, um, yeah, I was, I was, I am the expert in the field that we, in, in the research that we were trying to study. So um, it kind of made sense from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, We've been colleagues for a long time, so we work together well. But yeah, it was just like the impression of everyone at the station immediately. It was just like no one told them who the leader was, but they just, yeah, assumed it was the guy. Yeah, I think that implicit bias is something that I'm really working hard to disrupt kind of with this series and in the work that I'm doing. And I really do want to see more women, like see your example and see my example and then see themselves in these places and like want to go there because they are so magical and so cool. And I have a similar thing happen with my partner. My husband is like six foot one and everybody always assumes that he's the mountain guide, even though I have like more, I mean, he has a great resume, but I have a little bit more experience. I mean, this is my profession. This is what I've devoted the last like almost two decades of my life to doing. And so yeah. <laughs> like in terms yeah. of snow and avalanches and, and route and risk management, like I definitely have more experience. And it's just so funny because everyone is like assuming that he's guiding me or he's taking me. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's tough. Did you um, have any other instances of gender bias or harassment or anything like that when you were doing field work did you feel safe um on that particular trip everything was fine but I have had a really bad experience in the past um my first ever uh, field trip to Greenland um which was led by a more senior man um and I was the only woman on the trip and I was a yeah kind of a young PhD student and yeah I was targeted in all kinds of ways, which was totally not appropriate. And at the time, so this was like just over a decade ago. Um, yeah, I, can, I, I put in an official complaint when I got back to the university and nothing was done about it. My PhD advisor also put in a complaint. Look what he put it in my behalf. And it, yeah, it was bad. So it, just to, I won't go into too much detail, but just to summarize, it was things like, I wasn't allowed to drive a skidoo because I was a woman. I couldn't use the ice drill because I was a woman. I would like be the person doing the washing dishes in the evening. It was it was totally ridiculous. And um, I'd done a lot of field work in the past. At this point, I'd driven skidoos like many, many a time. I'd worked in Svalbard, um, Spitsbergen many times. Like he knew I was capable and... He also knew I was like a pretty hardcore climber and I was not this like woman who really didn't have much experience of being in the outdoors at all. He, he knew that I was perfectly capable, but he just wanted to make a point. This is the leader of this expedition I'm talking about. He wanted to make a point by, um, yeah, not allowing me to do these things. It was rough. <laughs> 
That is so frustrating. And I thank you for sharing that because I know those experiences can be deeply traumatic and really difficult to talk about sometimes because they're so frustrating. And then to have no kind of recourse or way to hold people accountable, I feel like that stuff is kind of changing, but there are still a few people out there that if you're kind of paired with the wrong people and the dynamics aren't well, like it can still be kind of a hostile. I mean, I see that a lot in my field as well. Like there's just sometimes people, I feel like they just have it out for me. And I think it's just because I'm not only a woman, but like I'm a assertive, like I'm not afraid to speak my mind. Like I'm not afraid to hold my ground yeah, and to yeah. step into the position of yeah. power. And I think like yeah. it can be deeply, tr- I it's it's tough. So do you have any tips for like how to handle those situations? <laughs> I don't question. know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I had a similar approach to you. So he told me I couldn't ride a skidoo. So of course I went and drove the skidoo. Like, you know, I, I did exactly what he was telling me not to do. Um because of course I could, well, I'm not going to listen to him, but yeah, I mean, fingers crossed, nothing like that will happen again. But um, yeah, there's, there was a whole film actually that came out this year that I don't know if you've heard of called picture a scientist. And it specifically involves um, female glaciologists working in the field. And it highlights, yeah, a few um, very brave women who've come forward and told their stories um, about uh, men that they've worked with in the past and um yeah the way that the universities at the times dealt with uh, the issues and yeah it brings up a, a huge range of issues it's it's extremely interesting film well i hope i i know that that stuff can be really hard to watch and it can be hard to share those like i'm so grateful for the women who are speaking up and sharing that and it's a way to kind of hold people accountable. And I really hope that the next generation doesn't have to deal with those things because yeah. for me, they're so draining. And it's like you're yeah. already out there on these in these wild places and you're kind of living in these extremes where yeah. humans aren't really, like no humans really live there. And then to have to deal with that additional layer. Yeah. So yeah. do you it's think that... Being the only woman, like that, that changed the dynamic in that trip as well. Like, how does it change when you have another woman with you? Yeah, I, that's interesting, and I don't know because that's the only time I've experienced harassment in the field. Um, yeah, I, I've heard other stories of the same glaciologist, the same senior man working with other women, and he's treated them badly too. Mm. Also, um, young PhD student, female PhD students. So I don't know. He, he, but he, he. I'd met him before, and he's been perfectly pleasant, um, which is how how he knew of my kind of climbing background too. So it was like he was really out to get me. I thought we started like a really good kind of friendship, almost as well as like a work collaboration. I just, yeah, I blame him a lot, but I also blame the university at the time for doing absolutely nothing. And I think that's what will really change in the future, or has changed already. If they were told that information now they'd have to do something or someone's like really going to go out of their way to sue them or yeah yeah it would just be out there as a like a yeah a completely ridiculous story be headline news yeah well and it seems like also other men have a really like other men that are with the expedition doing the field work could also play a role because like as the only woman it could be really exhausting to like speak up and be like no and to challenge the authority but I feel like other men that there's like needs to be kind of more 
advocacy or education around men's role in advocating for gender equality too because like if a bystander just speaks up it can really like de-escalate the situation really quickly but it's uh it can be really hard when it's always like on your shoulders that additional emotional labor in addition to having to do the dishes right yeah exactly yeah no and i don't the, i mean I, I don't remember too clearly but i don't remember the other men on the expedition speaking up yeah. On the other hand, I do know that they were having a pretty hard time with this leader too. They were not happy with some of the decisions um, he'd made about the other, other things. Like we were all as a team very annoyed with this leader for various reasons. But yeah, no one actually stood up for me and was like, she can drive a skidoo just as well as everyone else. In fact, she's got more experience than half, half of us here. So that would have been great if they had. And yeah, I agree. That would be a game changer. Yeah. That would be very powerful. So tell me a little bit more about the field work that you do and your research and like what you learn from your time down there and in Greenland as well. Yeah, so um, I'll try not to go into too much detail, but yeah, I study at the moment, at least I'm studying Antarctica's ice shelves. So these are the floating extensions to Antarctica's, Antarctica's glacier ice on land. Um, so these ice shelves sur surround Antarctica. They surround about 75% of the continent. Um, but they're not to be confused with sea ice, which is frozen ocean. So I'm talking about actual glacier ice that um, is floating. And these ice shelves are already in the ocean, so they're not themselves contributing to sea level when they melt. A good way to think about it is if you put a, like a cube of ice into um, a glass of water, a gin tonic, when that ice melts, the sea level is not, sorry, the sea level, <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> the drink level. <laughs> the, the drink level is not going to um, raise up. It's just going to stay the same when that ice cube melts. So it's the same with ice shelves because they're already in the ocean. However, ice shelves are super important because they actually act to buttress the inland ice that's grounded on land from accelerating into the ocean. So if the ice shelves weren't there, Antarctica would lose a lot of ice extremely quickly and would raise sea levels by up to 60 meters which wow. is huge that is huge so um yeah it's these low-lying ice shelves where most of antarctica's melt is happening at the moment so that's why i'm studying them or and many other people are studying them so yeah we're, we're looking at the effect of the earth's warming climate um on the stability on their stability Super interesting. So how, so there's ice shelves, which are these buffer zones between the ice themselves, the ice, the glaciers themselves and the ocean. And then there's sea ice, which is a completely different thing. And then there's, yeah. are ice shelves, ice sheets, are those the same or different? Yeah. So an ice, ice shelves officially are part of an ice sheet. They're okay. just like the continuation of the ice sheet. So when we say the Antarctic ice sheets, we mean all of Antarctica's glacier ice. Mm -hmm. And the glacier ice is composed of both the ice that's on the land. So if you drill down, you'd get to rock. Um, but it's also composed of this ice that flows out into the ocean. And it's natural for these ice shelves to lose icebergs. So the term for that is carving. So they carve ice, sorry, icebergs. I think I said ice shelves. It's natural for ice shelves to carve icebergs. So you might have heard about the big iceberg that carved off the Larsen Sea ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula a couple of years ago. So um, that process is normal, but that particular iceberg was exceptionally large, and that's why it hit the news headlines. And as these ice shelves are um, melting, they're melting both on the surface due to 
rising air temperatures and also from warming oceans. They're thinning, and because they're thinning, they're becoming more fragile and more likely to um, break up more rapidly. So we get much larger icebergs more often. Carbon. And how thick are these ice shelves that you're studying? Yeah, so they they vary a lot, but um, the one I'm studying at the moment, which is the George the Sith ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula, that's about 200 meters thick. Um, and some some ice shelves are even thicker. So um, the Ross ice shelf, for instance, um, I'm not actually sure off the top of my head how thick it is, but um, yeah, maybe 500 meters or so. Wait, 200 to 500 meters? Yeah, but then they can be much thinner. I've also worked on another ice shelf, which was only 30 meters thick. Okay. So, yeah, they don't look that thick. So if you if you um if you're in a boat and you went up to the front of a um the carving front of an ice shelf, because ice is slightly less dense than water, they float with about ten percent of their thickness sticking out of the water. So um yeah, so say if you see like if you've got an ice cliff in front of you that's about 10 meters high, then underneath the water, you're going to have another 90 meters of thickness for a hundred meter thick ice shelf, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And so just to put it into perspective too, how thick is the ice that is over the continent of the landmass of Antarctica? Yeah. So for Antarctica in, in the center, it's um, just over two miles thick. Whoa. Um, yeah, which is thicker than Greenland. Um, so, yeah, it's a hell of a lot of ice. So this is why if the whole of Antarctica were to melt, it would contribute to sea level rise by 60 metres, um, which is a hell of a lot. But even in the short term, like um, Antarctica is predicted to contribute to sea level rise by maybe up to three foot by the end of the century. Um, and even that amount of sea level rise would yeah have a huge effect on people around the world so i think that's enough to displace about 100 million people um particularly obviously in low-lying areas and that's exactly where most of uh cities are located so in the us for instance i think new york is likely to be underwater new york city is likely to be underwater houston miami new orleans i'm probably saying that wrong in my uh english accent sounded good to me um yeah it's it's a big deal it is a big deal so the work you're doing out there really matters to the rest of the world and for climate forecasting and for just like human life right it's not this isn't just um happening in a vacuum like this has real life implications for people's future and um i mean already we're seeing some of the flooding and sea level rise happening so yeah for sure yeah so as well as the climate warming up um as the climate warms up, we're also going to end up with many more extreme weather events. So that's, um, yeah, more storms in particular. So huge amounts of rainfall, strong winds. Yeah, it's not just the earth warming and people enjoying more beach vacations. It's definitely not as simple as that. Yeah, it's way more catastrophic and it's yeah. not, yeah, the f- flooding and everything. It's, uh, yeah, it's death. Fires, fires too. Fires, yeah, yeah it's, it's life or death. So tell me, so your field work, what you're doing really matters. And I'm so grateful for your leadership. And um, what does your field work then? Like, how long are you there? And what are you doing on the ice? Yeah, so good question. Um, So, yeah, we tend to be there for about a month. um, A month actually doing field work. But then there's always a bit of time in the research station beforehand, getting things ready. So that's sorting out our science equipment and um, camping equipment and food and talking to the 
Mantenay who will be going out with us about what the plan is. Um, there's all kinds of like really super complicated logistics. Um, I don't know, working out how much fuel we need for skidoos, things like that. Anyway, then we um, usually fly onto the ice shelf uh, in small twin otter planes mm-hmm. um, with skidoos. So we put the skidoos in the twin otter. So it's often like three or four flights in total. We're in one flight, but then the equipment, um, food and camping stuff as well as the skidoos go and others. And then, yeah, when we get there, so what I'm particularly interested in is um, how ice shelves melt due to the warming air temperatures. And basically you end up with a lot of surface water all over these ice shelves or many ice shelves, particularly George the Sith ice shelf, which is the one I study. Um, and ice shelves are pretty flat areas, but any kind of topography can mean that that water moves around. And what we observe is um, the formation of huge meltwater lakes on the surface. And so we try to study those lakes because these lakes are important. They can, um, if they get too big, they can suddenly drain down through the ice shelf through a huge crevasse and drain right into the ocean. And the effect of that drainage event can um, cause more crevasses, more fractures all around that lake. And ultimately, if um, lots of lakes happen to be draining a similar time, in fact, we think that some lakes can trigger other lakes to drain to a kind of chain reaction mechanism, which sounds kind of wacky, but we think that's how, for example, the Larson B ice shelf collapsed in 2002, which was a, a famous event. I think um, ice shelf was about the size of Rhode Island collapsed in just a couple of weeks Wow. So, yeah, we think that collapse is due to this like kind of chain reaction drainage of lots of surface lakes. So, yeah, as the climate warms, we're expecting these lakes to become more and more uh, dense over ice shelves. So we monitor these lakes by putting um, water pressure sensors in them to measure their depth. And then we also install GPS stations around the lakes and they measure the um, change in vertical elevation of the ice shelves. And together, they can uh, measure the, how much the ice shelf is flexing. So how much it's like bending as a result of the lake first filling. So that will push the ice shelf down. And then when the lake drains, the ice shelf is suddenly going to pop up. And uh, super accurate GPS measurements can, um, yeah, can document that process. So these stations are accurate to the nearest centimeter, usually. That's so fascinating. And I mean, it sounds like it could be kind of risky or sketchy, to be like out there on the skidoo <laughs> i mean yeah, have you, like have you seen big crevasses or have you like witnessed any of like i'm picturing like a lake on top of the ice and then all of a sudden it's like a everything like getting sucked down but on a way yeah. bigger scale yeah, yeah, like yeah, have yeah. you no. seen that happen or it's almost like a toilet getting flushed but like <laughs> yeah have, no that, yeah. that is a great question um so in antarctica we um purposely generally do not go when we're expecting such an event to occur Mm -hmm. so the field work project i'm involved at the moment we go early melt season so in fact we're there before much melting is occurring at all certainly before any lakes are going to drain um however i have seen the rapid drainage of a lake in greenland before from a distance we saw it from camp we're about a kilometer away and this huge surface lake on the ice shelf which was It was about a kilometre across, a kilometre in diameter, and it drained within two and a half hours. Wow. And, yeah, we were quite a way away, as I say, about 
about a kilometer, I think. But um, yeah, it, you could see how dramatic it was, even though we were that far away. We could see these enormous icebergs on the surface, like spinning rounds in circles, like suggesting that well, it looked like water going down a plug hole, basically, which is what was happening. Water was draining down this huge crevasse to the bed of the Greenland ice sheet, which where we were was like just under a mile thick, I believe. So yeah, a huge like draining through a, a crevasse. Wow. Definitely, potentially quite dangerous. And um, something I also have done, which I regret, was on one of my trips to Greenland, we went swimming in one of those lakes uh, wearing dry suits. But we, part <laughs> we, we were in the dry suits to deploy a pressure sensor in the lake to measure the depth. But then we kind of, you know, had a bit of a swim as we were in there. But then afterwards, we were thinking like, what the hell? We were expecting this lake to drain like any day now. That's why we put the pressure sensor in. That's why we've got the GPS network around this lake. So we were swimming in it. <laughs> that's not something I recommend anyone tries at home. That is so wild. I mean, that's like, yeah, it's really risky. It sounds so scary. It sounds also kind of really um, badass and like James <laughs> Bond almost or like a woman James Bond. You know, yeah. like you're out there doing this. <laughs> This stunt almost, this amazing feat of, um, yeah, I mean, the athletic accomplishment, too, of doing that, that deep yeah, dive well, sensor installation. Yeah, no, we, we weren't diving. We we just put it on a weight and uh, okay. dropped it into the bottom of the lake. Got it. Yeah. In fact, okay. we started out on a boat. We were on a Zodiac boat wow. with an outboard motor on the Greenland ice sheet. So that's what we used to get to the center of the lake. But then we were like, as we're here, yeah. um, let's also go for a swim. But we shouldn't have been in the boat like that in itself was dangerous. We didn't think about it at the time. Um, it was just uh, yeah, it's something I would, I would never do now. But no one's going to survive a lake range event like that. Like the water is so, the the yeah, the event is just so powerful. There's so much energy. You'd be yeah. Yeah, you'd, you'd be zero sucked chance. straight down to the sea, yeah, yeah. and you'd be stuck underneath the ice. Or yeah, well, for for Greenland, you'd like you'd go right down to the rock, the bedrock beneath. And yeah, you'd probably have drowned or been crushed. And then for Antarctica, for these ice shelves, yeah, you'd go down into the ocean below the ice shelf. I've heard <laughs> also for mountaineers that if you fall into a crevasse in Antarctica, that like, you know, when we're, so when we're doing like our risk management for glacier travel, it's like we pick our rope length and the distance that we rope together because like we are estimating in our minds, like how big are the crevasses that we expect here? And you mm -hmm. can actually use now, I think there's like satellite data and other data that mountaineers and adventurers can use to help them determine how far apart their rope should be for different glaciers in the world. Yeah, yeah. So, but I've heard for Antarctica that if you fall in without a rope, like there's no amount of rope. Yeah. And so it's, there's that part of it that's pretty scary. Plus, there's the extreme cold. And so, yeah. how, how, like, what else do you do to manage risk? Like, you told me before that you rope together on the ski doos. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just like traveling together um, when hiking or when skiing, I guess, too. But we actually tie the ski doos together with like ridiculously thick ropes. So it's like two inch diameter rope, I guess. It's super heavy. You can hardly lift it, even just like the end of it. Um, and yeah, the skidoos are tied together and it's kind of a, it's a strange system, but you have one skidoo, then you have a sled and then you have another skidoo. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think you can repeat that two or three times, depending on how many people you're traveling with. Wow. Um, and the more, the better. But the idea being that if one skidoo goes down, you've got enough weight behind to um, stop the rest going down too. 
Yeah. In reality, I'm not actually sure if this has ever been tested, meaning it's never saved anyone's life as far as I know. But right. um, yeah, that's that's the idea behind it. But it is it is a total pain. Like you have to be so careful not to drive over the rope in front of you if you're not the front skidoo. And then mm-hmm. even if you're the front skidoo, you have to be super careful not to go too fast because if you start pulling this skidoo behind, you're going to damage their motor. And you can't make like joy turns and like yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to focus the whole time. You can't really be looking at the scenery because you're going to go too fast or too slow or yeah. So. It sounds a lot like skiing together too. I like to be in yeah. the front now after like, especially if my partners weigh a lot more than me because I found that if I was in the middle or the back, like when people are turning, that like the G-force of getting kind of that extra kind of pull on the rope, it was really, it just yeah. felt really hard on my knees and my joints. Yeah, yeah. No, that must crazy. be tough. Yeah, yeah. thankfully the skidoos absorb that. But yeah, that is definitely interesting when you've got like a chain of three skidoos and two sled- sleds trying to like do a 180 degree turn to go back to base trying not to drive over the ropes is kind of a yeah it sounds very adventurous you're really <laughs> brave to go do this for a month at a time <laughs> oh i don't yeah no i don't think so i've done much braver things in my life for, yeah climbing certainly i take more risk climbing than than i do doing field work apart from the swimming in the lake on the green and ice sheet but at the time i didn't think that was dangerous i don't think that counts as a um yeah I wasn't, it was like, for some reason, we weren't thinking. Well, it's understandable. I mean, it's, you're really out there and you're really leading and doing these things that you're in um, uncharted territory. And so you sometimes have to make those mistakes or, I mean, it's luckily you were all fine. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, I was, uh, I give the excuse I was a young PhD student at the time, but also like the, the science at that time was pretty fresh. Like, I think there's only been one group that had, observed a lake on on the Greenland ice sheet suddenly draining um through a crevasse so you know it wasn't we were kind of hopeful that the lake we were studying might drain but um yeah we, we weren't totally sure and in fact that lake didn't drain while we were there but it did drain a week after we left I believe interesting so how do you stay warm like what are your tips for staying warm out there oh I, I don't stay warm mostly I'm just cold <laughs> yeah um yeah, I don't enjoy it. For some reason, everyone else seems to stay much warmer than me. I'm always, I just, I can't seem to keep warm. But yeah, I, I take a lot of hot drinks with me, like huge thermos flasks, and just try to eat as much as I can as soon as I can, like as regularly as possible. But yeah, it's pretty hard to eat when you're kind of cold. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem is, yeah, you're either sitting on skidoos driving around, which is cold. Or you're standing around often without any gloves on or just like really super thin liners because you need to be able to like use little tools and, um, you know, screw up nuts and bolts, that kind of thing. So it's it's really hard to keep your hands warm. But yeah, hand warmers are great, although, yeah, not very environmentally friendly, but there's not really any option around that, I guess, in Antarctica. You can't really use reusable ones because there's no access to a microwave or anything. Yeah. Well, and it's hard to keep the bag. I've tried the heated gloves and I've 
when also about the waste of the it is a little bit of waste the hand warmers but you know mm -hmm. what else is wasteful is frostbite losing your fingers yeah. right <laughs> i yeah. think there's a lot of syringes and things yeah, that yeah. they would have to dispose of and yeah. bandages and so yeah also you don't want to pollute the ice shelves with lots of tops of fingers and toes yeah <laughs> Antarctica in general who knows what kind of bacteria that could encapsulate into the ice that could come back later right yeah the human yeah, tissue that, so that would be bad yeah or, or, yeah on that topic um maybe um listeners are interested in hearing about this so actually when i've done field work with the united states antarctic program they insist on all human waste being taken back to the u.s so that includes pee so every time you go for a pee you have to pee into an algae bottle mm -hmm. that's just rules like even if yeah, wherever you are, you have to do that. Even if you're like miles away into the middle of a night shelf, you still have to be into a bottle. Yeah, with the British program, you actually don't. So as long as you're in an area that's experiencing melting or solid waste. Well, I think that's, I mean, the the pee maybe seems like like a little, I mean, I know they do that at Union Glacier too. Like they, mm -hmm. they collect all the pee and the poop. And I think they actually have like a separator in the toilets at Union yeah. Glacier. that okay. can. I don't know how they separate pee and poop because- as a mountaineer, we use these things called wag bags where we poop mm -hmm. into a bag. But it's yeah. and you like you want it to be as light as possible because you have to carry it with you. But it's really hard to go poop without peeing at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I know that. Yeah. We have sorry to poop if this into is a... TMI no, for I some people. Same, no, 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 I have the same problem. But um, I find this yeah. stuff fascinating for sure <laughs> because like also for winter camping, my pee bottle is my best friend. Like I have this yeah. now, this bigger Nalgene, it's like a 48 ounce and it's a wide mouth. So I've actually learned it's easier just to pee straight into the Nalgene than it is to use yeah. a funnel. But I know some yeah, women yeah. like the funnel. Yeah, I don't use a funnel. I've, I've tried it. In fact, I've tried it climbing in Yosemite on a big wall and had a terrible experience, mostly because of the updrafts of the wind. Oh, um, <laughs> um but yeah i just it's yeah i agree with you it's just much easier pink straight into the bottle yeah even and if there's no wind when you're out on the ice all day do you pee into do you use the funnel or the bottle there or do you just pee on the ice no or? yeah i just pee on the ice yeah or at least i do with the um the british program again it depends that's what I usually do too. And I've but, just gotten yeah. to the point where I just like, oh, I heard on Vincent actually, this is really interesting that along the Mountaineers route, they have little yellow flags and they want people to stop and pee at those designated areas because it snows so little in the interior of Antarctica that if people were to just pee at wherever they wanted and not in designated yeah. areas, it would just be like a giant pee stain on the ice. Yeah, yeah. No, that would be bad. They definitely need to do that. For, um, yeah. So I thought, I think that's quite interesting. So hopefully I can like time my pee. <laughs> I, yeah. It shouldn't be a problem. Like that's another skill I have is like I can hold it for a really long time on summer day if it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when, yeah, when we're at the, um, the research base or like when we're in the camp, um, in the fields then we'd have a specific place where we pee yeah, mm -hmm. to avoid like pee everywhere but then yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis when we're working in different areas we can pee anywhere I think that's a nice tip just for people who are going snow camping in general is like when you're setting up your snow camp just designate one place to pee or if yeah. you're even going to a hut or something in Canada or other places yeah. like it's mm -hmm. really nice if you have a designated spot so there's not just pee stains everywhere yeah 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 for sure uh, so that is our pro tip of the day <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I have two quick, more quick questions. So how can we take your research and what you're doing and kind of use it to guide our advocacy around climate? 
or like what do you think people should be doing like based on what you're seeing this is a hard question so i apologize yeah that that is that is that is a big question um on one hand i'd say every little counts do everything you can to um try and not impact the environment but ultimately i think what I really think needs to happen is people need to kind of get on top of policymakers to really get them to make some changes. Because although every little counts, um, you really need the kind of the forces behind the governments or forces within the governments to enable change. Like we need to be moving to renewable energy sources like ASAP. Um, no question about it. Yeah. Well, I agree. I mean, it's it takes a lot of privilege and resources to decarbonize or to like convert your life to make it fossil fuel free right like exactly. and and it would be way better like rather than telling everyone like you have to get rooftop solar or like a windmill in your backyard <laughs> it's a lot better if we can have those community-wide rather than making the burden on each individual household yeah for sure we did it we just installed solar last spring at our house and it was like nice. we had to redo yes. our roof and it was, it was really like I had to save, we had to save a lot of money. I mean, we didn't travel at all much in 2020. So we had some like travel funds that we could use to doing that improvement, but not everybody has like, yeah, so I am 100% with you. And so I guess how else do you think that adventurers and scientists and like, how can we come together better to kind of influence these policies? Um. Yeah, that's also a tricky question. I mean, I think definitely at the moment there's a disconnect between the scientists and the policymakers, but also scientists themselves aren't qualified to necessarily give advice to the policymakers. Um, that's not what they're trained to do at all. I, yeah, I really think there should be more funding available for kind of like the interim people, the people who communicate between scientists and the policymakers. I think that's, that's an area that um, perhaps should be focused on. Yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. Well, it would be really cool to do some like lobbying with you and to go to DC <laughs> and to talk about yep, Antarctica. That would and, be cool. And I do think policymakers would be curious because Antarctica is just one of those places that really captures your imagination. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I think that would be super fun. And I'd love to see a future where just everyday people can learn that there's a better way for people to understand like what you're doing. And that's why I'm so grateful for you to come to the podcast today to talk about your work because yeah, the more ways we can get it out there, like it is so cool what you do. It's so inspiring. And your stories are really like, they have a huge impact for the world and for the future of humanity. So yeah. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been great. Thanks. And yeah, thanks for highlighting my work too and other scientists that I know you've been talking to recently. Um, well, it's been so fun for me to learn and to hear your stories. And so thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and I really look forward to keeping in touch and I hope someday that we could ski and get outside together. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'd love that. And how can we follow your work? Um, yeah, so um, most of my work actually is on Twitter. So um, my um, handle is at Ali Banwell, A-L-I-B-A-N-W-E-L-L. -L, and my handle for Instagram is the same. But yeah, mostly on Instagram, I'm climbing, skiing or having surgeries. I've just done, I just had hip surgeries. So I'm out of, uh, I should be in Antarctica right now, actually, but I'm not due to that. Um, I'm kind of, yeah, rehabbing at home, seeing on a stationary bike a lot. So, yeah, there'll be some more posts once I 
get to uh, Antarctica or start doing fun stuff again. Yeah, well, I'm sending you a lot of healing vibes with that hip, and um, I will link those um, those social media handles in the show notes. And thank you again. It was so awesome to hear about your work. Yeah, you're welcome. Best of luck on your expedition. Thank yeah, you. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, we're really excited. Awesome. We'll have a great day. Great. Thank you. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative. I'll show up at the table again and again and again. I'll close my mouth and learn to listen. Special thanks to Avery Sandak for his help with the audio on today's episode. To my partner, Rob Lee, for being extra quiet while recording in the house today. And to Rising Appalachia for graciously providing the music for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate and review it so other people can find it. Until next time.